This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and you can find us via podcast 24-7, wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as my, at Laura Zarrow. So it's not news that women, especially women of color, were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic for reasons rooted in systemic challenges that include things like a lack of access to childcare and paid leave. What may be news is that there are now serious efforts underway that aim to create access to economic opportunity and mitigate these very challenges. And one of the most impressive by far is being led by today's guest. Ashley Putnam is the director of the Economic Growth and Mobility Project that we might refer to as EGMP as we go along, because that's a mouthful. It's a strategic initiative of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. So Ashley, welcome to Women at Work. Laura, I am so happy to be here and thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. Before we dive in, I just want to give people a little background on who you are and what you've done before. So before joining the, Fed, the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank, Ashley served as the economic development advisor for the mayor's office of workforce development in New York City, where she facilitated the coordination between economic and workforce development. In previous roles, Ashley founded and directed a fellowship program connecting young people to policy, research, and service on issues of urban poverty. She also worked at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, America's Works of New York, and the Women's City Club of New York. Ashley learned to do all this through a master's in public administration from the NYU's uh, Robert F. Wagner School of Public Service and has a BA from Barnard College. So now we know a little bit about you, Ashley, and I want to dive into some stuff. So can we get anchored first on what is the EGMP and who does it aim to serve? Absolutely. And great question, Laura. So I lead a strategic initiative that the Philadelphia Fed launched about five years ago. And it really came out of a need that we saw across the country, um, but especially in Philadelphia, which is the highest poverty large city in the United States. And the question was really, we have this incredible research that the Federal Reserve has been producing for years. We have a community development and outreach arm. We do great work bringing people together and talking about problems in the economy. And the question was really, what can we do about it? How do we start to think about advancing solutions? So the Economic Growth and Mobility Project exists to really think about the intersection of research and practice and how we can bring these big research papers we do to bear on some of these local problems. Um, so I'm really excited about the work we've done. I also think it's important to note that the Federal Reserve is doing this because economic mobility is good for the economy. And that's often a question I get. Um, I will be honest and say, Laura, when I was first recruited for this job, I said, the Federal Reserve does what? Right, <laughs> so it totally surprised me too. And it was really kind of interesting to me to think about, you know, we have these two mandates at the Fed, 
One is about price stability, right? And that's what you hear on the news all the time, you know, inflation and whether or not interest rates are going up. And listen, those are extremely important and critical conversations. But we often talk a little bit less about the maximum employment mandate. And one of the things that we found really interesting in our research is both of these things, whether it's employment or price stability, are really impacted by inequality. And we see in countries where we give more money to consumers, more money to people in in lower wage jobs, more money to kind of the bottom 20% of income earners, it's actually really good for their GDP. It actually stimulates growth. Um, And we've kind of been in a massive social experiment of that. I don't like calling a pandemic that when I say that, (laughs) Um, but it's something I like to talk about a lot. I can understand why. So I want to just um, roll back for a moment. So I have to, I, I appreciate the explanation because I also only really correlated the Federal Reserve Bank with, you know, interest rates and, you know, how much it costs to borrow it and loan money. Um, but that notion that the strength and integrity of the economy and the financial system is not just based on how we debate things like interest rates. It's really rooted in these in people's real lives, whether or not we're going to work, whether or not we're making money and the degree to which we're able to pump that money back into the economy. Am I getting it? Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, oftentimes we hear these numbers and like, I'll be honest, me too, my eyes kind of glaze over, right? I'm like, <laughs> right. All right, unemployment, what's happening? And so a lot of my work is to think about the people behind the numbers, right? What are the human experiences of this when we say Philly is a really high poverty city or that people are having a hard time getting back to work or rejoining the economy? You know, those are people's real experiences of insecurity, of, of not knowing whether or not they're going to be able to pay rent or pay bills this month. And so the work we get to do in the the Economic Growth and Mobility Project, or EGMP, however you will call it, um, is really to think about how do we foster solutions around some of these really big and often pretty difficult issues to tackle. Yeah, they're enormous and enduring and complicated. So um, before we go into like how we actually solve them, I want to understand more about the path from Um, identifying the area that needs to be investigated to doing the research to actually um, putting it into practice. You know, I'm anchored in an Ivy League institution. um, And one of the things that we're proud of at Penn and at Wharton is that all of our research is intended to inform practice. It is challenging, though, to build that bridge. So what's the bridge that goes from the research that you're doing to how we get these things to actually happen in real life? Absolutely. I mean, I think fundamentally the bridge is people, right? The bridge is organizations that are doing this work that are in contact with the communities that are impacted. And I find sometimes I'll be honest and say, um, I come from a family of academics. And so I think with two hats, I, you know, I love academia. I love the research. I get super excited about a new finding and a new study, but sometimes that can kind of exist in a silo, right? And getting that research into the lives of the people who are actually impacted by it, it's a challenge. And one of the things we've learned in this process is that sometimes when we're sitting and looking at a problem, we may not be correctly understanding the problem. We may be framing the problem wrong. Um, So I'll give some, some examples from our work. We did some research and action work around transportation. And, you know, we look at it, we think, oh, maybe it's expensive. And that's why people stopped using public transit. Or maybe it's that 
the bus is dirty, right? And people don't like to ride the bus. But when you actually talk to people about their lived experiences, you find that actually defines a different problem, right? They weren't, it, the issue wasn't, and this was in Scranton, Pennsylvania, so I can't necessarily speak to, to Philly or Washington DC or any of your other listeners. Um, but the issue for a lot of people who use public transportation was whether or not it got them to where they needed to be in a reasonable commute. And so one of the challenges for us is actually to not lead with assuming we know what the problem is. It's also to not lead with the solution. And I find sometimes when we get really excited about innovation, people come in the room and they're like, I have this brilliant idea. Let me see if I can find a problem to fit my idea. Oh, please, uh, this applies to so many areas in life. It's very true. And, and so the, the process we go through with these labs, um, it's really unusual. It's unusual for the Fed, um, but it, it's kind of centered in, in human beings, right? We use human-centered design as the principle. So if you probably teach that at Wharton Business School, it's actually something we do a lot in like the private sector. Like, hey, mm -hmm. are we designing products that make sense for real people who are going to use them? Not so much in the social sector, right? Oftentimes we're designing, you know, up in, in government or in institutions, thinking we understand what the problem is, thinking that the solution makes sense. And when you get down to the ground level of people who are actually using and, and working with the solution, they're like, I don't even think you're solving for my problem. This is not actually the problem I have. So half of our projects with the research and action labs is to take this big research the Fed does and localize it, right? Bring it down to the street level, the neighborhood level, the county level, the city level, and make sure we're actually talking about the right problem. So um, when, you, when you do that, how much of it is that you're extracting data from various sources and drilling down into the local subset of data? And how much of it is you're going into the community to collect new data and be in dialogue with the community? So it's about 50-50. And actually, really? yeah, a, a key part of this, now listen, it's a lot harder in a pandemic, Laura. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. It's so much more challenging. Um, but the conversation we're having today, I'll, I'll share a project I'm really excited about this year we're gonna be doing some work talking with workers about their experiences in the labor market. And we know we, we see these big data points, you know, there's a labor shortage and businesses are having a really hard time finding people and no one wants to come back to work. And then we see these other data points on people are quitting at higher rates and the great resignation. And often we're talking about workers without workers, right? We're not talking to the people who are trying to balance childcare and whether or not there's still a pandemic and I'm in health risk and whether or not my schedule is going to be stable. Um, so this project I'm, I'm engaging in this year is an attempt to talk to workers across the country and have them in, inform the research. Um, and we've done something really similar around childcare uh, this past year as well. This is amazing. So Ashley, I want to jump back to something that you touched on briefly in the beginning, which was that the EM... PG or the EGMP, I got to say the whole thing probably, or I won't you get to that. You can just say economic right. mobility project. We're good. You're good. Okay, good. Um, that it's actually been going on for five years. And um, I'm interested to learn what was the trajectory of the work. And, you know, you said it's hard to do research in a pandemic. So one is how did you circumvent the challenges presented by it? But almost more importantly, how did the pandemic itself change what you were researching? Oh, great question, Laura. And I think the pandemic really deeply impacted the work we were doing. Um, before the pandemic, we would do 
one research and action lab with a place, usually for 18 to 24 months. Um, so these are really long processes, right? And, and we often say it's not a product, it's not an event, it's not a single paper, it is a process by which we walk through, are we defining the correct problem? And then how do we explore solutions? When, we, when the pandemic hit, we really had to sit back and say, how can we have the most impact possible in this economic crisis? across our, our area that we serve at the Philadelphia Fed. So I work with the state of New Jersey, the state of Pennsylvania and the state of Delaware. And we actually have three process projects running at the same time across those states. But I will share some of the problems that existed before the pandemic, right? It's not, the pandemic didn't necessarily make these problems new but they really exacerbated some of the issues. Um, and my favorite case study on this is the work we're doing right now on childcare. And so we're talking about women and work, and this is the perfect place to say, many of us know from lived experience what it is like to have to balance caregiving with the day-to-day -day actual issues that are happening with your work, your life, the balance of like Please. income. Most challenging thing I've ever had to do. And on many dimensions, I have it easier than a lot of people. Right. And I'll say, you know, I, I myself don't have children. I have not had to go through this in terms of childcare. Um, but I have had to go through this in terms of elder care. So I spent a significant portion of this year um, actually at home helping care for my, my aging father. Um, and those are things that are often situations that fall disproportionately on women. Mm -hmm. um, and when we look at the data, they also really deeply impact women of color. Um, so we look at the experiences Black and Hispanic women have had in this crisis they're more likely to be in places where they don't have access to high quality childcare or affordable childcare. They're more likely to be impacted by what we're now calling a childcare crisis. But to be honest, Laura, some of the issues, they were issues before the pandemic. They just accelerated really quickly. Right. <laughs> so this, this lab we've been leading, this research and action lab, which is what we call the, the approach we take to, to doing our work, um, has been with some folks in Delaware. And it's really been eye-opening. And we spent some time sitting down with working parents, sitting down with businesses, sitting down with childcare providers. And we actually just had a study come out on perspectives from early childcare um, that was looking at, you know, what did we learn from, from the human beings, right? Not the data. We have a lot of really impactful and honestly pretty dismal data about what's yeah, happening sure. to childcare. But what did we learn from people navigating these systems? Um, and it really is a critical moment we're in, in terms of what's happening to the care economy and honestly, what it means for women in work way into the future beyond this pandemic. Okay, so I wanna dig into this a little bit because uh, kind of as the, the companion to um, what I, I just love that you brought up the issue of how do we innovate um, and not arrive with our solutions and then find a problem to fit them. Um, given A, you've had a career of preparing you for this kind of research and building a knowledge base. The project started five years ago. What was the, what were the things that surprised you most? What did you learn by engaging at the more local level now? Yeah. Well, so you, you might be interested to know, Laura, I majored uh, in undergraduate in anthropology so I'm a really <laughs> unusual person at the Federal Reserve Bank, right? Yeah, you're not an economist. No, I'm not. And I'm like, I always say I'm not an economist, but I hang out with them a lot, right? Um, <laughs> you so, and me both, yeah. yeah. And so I, I sit in these conversations, and this is interesting because people will say, well, why anthropology? What did you learn from anthropology? 
Um, but anthropology takes an approach that is really to assume that, that I don't necessarily have the information, right? This sort of ethnographic approach where we spend time with community, we observe, we collect qualitative information, you allow other people to inform you. Um, I really, I'll be honest and say, wasn't positive I was going to use those skills so much in my career. And I feel like I have used my experience in, in anthropology and qualitative research way more in this project than I ever could have anticipated. Um, and I think, honestly, it's, it's that kind of baseline thing where we just have to assume that we don't necessarily have the answer, right? Mm -hmm. that the answer, someone else has the answer and we're trying to figure out how people can think differently across sectors, across silos. It's breaking down this like, oh, it's the government's fault or it's the business community's fault or it's, you know, the worker's fault and trying to find both the, the solution and also, you know, are we identifying the right problem, right? right. Do we understand the right problem? So it's so interesting that you, these skills that you developed as an anthropology major, um, I learned how to do qualitative research in order to design educational solutions. And we mm. recently did a show with Stara Stein Greenberg from Stanford's D School, who's yeah. teaching these kinds of qualitative research methods to designers because they are so potent. And at the heart of it is that you first have to understand what the real problem is. That's right. And I'll say, so you mentioned Stanford and the D School, the, the basis of our project is human-centered design, right? And that again is an approach that assumes I don't necessarily have the answer or even the correct problem, right? right? And you have to like reframe and reframe as you think through it. And honestly, that can be a little unnerving for folks that are used to being really data centered, right? We walk in, we have a hypothesis, we test that hypothesis, we prove it true or not true. And we can maybe think about some of the reasons behind it. And then we move on to the next project, right? And this kind of walking in with like, Maybe the problem is this, maybe it's, you know, maybe the problem with early childcare we're learning isn't, are there enough childcare centers? It's, are there enough staff so that you can fill the capacity of the childcare center so that you can actually serve the full number of children that a childcare center could serve? Oh my God, um, this is, that's a, that is such an essential paradigm shift. So Ashley, as you're describing this, I'm, I'm imagining a community, an environment in which you work filled with economists. I'm guessing that, that there isn't a whole, the, t the anthropology team is not like a bustling center at the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, how do you help, how do you build the bridge between your colleagues who have such a different way of identifying and solving problems? Yeah, oh, great question. Um, I think a lot of the work I've had the opportunity to do is to sort of take our, our research questions on the road. Um, and so again, you know, question whether or not the, the research we're doing is actually useful. Is it actually informing practice? Um, I sit in the community development arm of our bank, which uh, interesting for your national listeners, all federal reserves have a community development branch. Um, something again, I did not know before I was at the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, so there are functions like this across the country that are reaching out into communities and trying to understand what their problems are, trying to understand what these critical economic conversations are. And so my job is really just to make sure that the the questions are informing, the practice is informing the research, right? Mm -hmm. And then the research is in turn in informing that practice and that we're thinking about solutions through the design of like actual human beings that are experiencing these, these problems. What a novel notion. Um, 
as I was doing research on the project, it was described as a multi-level effort. What does that mean? So I think to some extent that means that we work in, in really different ways, right? We work both in community, we work within research. Um, sometimes we're working in a county or a city. Sometimes we're working in a state. Um, sometimes like the, the project I mentioned about worker voice, we're working across the country. Um, and so the work here is really just to think about, again, how we can help inform better solutions and think beyond just producing a paper or you know, having an event. Uh, but really trying to foster something innovative and something different. And I'll, I'll say, you know, coming to this from city government was a really interesting lens to bring into this. When I was first interviewing for this job, I was like, you guys know I'm not an economist, right? Like, I'm, are you sure <laughs> that you want me in this conversation? Uh, but the more I've been in it, the more I realize there are tons of people who have roles like I had when I was in government in New York that are trying to solve for these problems. And they're looking for resources around research and data. They're also looking for innovation, right? They're trying to figure out who's doing this. Is another city doing this that I can copy? Is there a really cool approach? How can I think about this differently with, with my community and my stakeholders? So bringing that lens in has actually been very useful to me because I know what it's like to be on the other side and right. go, oh, <laughs> this paper would be really impactful if it told me to, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so I think sometimes that's the other role I have is trying to think about how we can make sure our research is, is really helping to inform practitioners. So along those lines, you were talking before about the importance of exploring and testing solutions and not presuming that you have the solution. In this kind of context where it's starting with the research question, at least, and refining the question, how at this local level are you testing out solutions? Are you running pilot programs? Are you standing up new activities? In the nitty gritty, how do you see if it's going to work? Great question. And I think you know, one of the limitations we have at the Fed is as we ourselves cannot you know, fund or stand up a pilot. Um, and so my work is really dependent on, we say, community champions right? Awesome people who are out there who are ringing the alarm bells about some of these really critical issues and bringing them together often across industries. Again, maybe, maybe people who weren't working together before to try to figure out what work they can do. Um, some of the pilots we've seen that have come out of this work have been anchor institutions, so universities. Um, we had a healthcare pilot that was in Northeastern Pennsylvania that was really interesting, that was providing people free rides to healthcare appointments because transportation was a really big issue. Um, so in each of these instances, we're exploring what can the people already here do? Um, and I think honestly, sometimes that's an unusual approach because sometimes our inclination is, oh, let's just go get a massive grant. And if I can get, you know, a big funder to come in, love to my big funder friends, and we, we hope they come and give us awesome grants for the work that we do. Um, but the problem is the funding at some point goes away, right? A grant ends. And if the people who are already there in that community are not working together differently at the end of that grant cycle, sometimes the project can totally dissipate. And so our, our hope is to get to some of these pilot projects that are actually stakeholders working together in totally different ways, sharing resources and doing the work differently. And um, so that so funding's then seed funding right. and not underwriting it, hoping to be extended or replaced, which just makes the whole thing vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. And it may just be, you know, like we're working with government institutions too. So maybe it's local government thinking differently about how it does its work, right? So maybe. how do you find and cultivate your partners for this? Do you like have a big party and invite everybody? Do you have a conference? Are you, you know, sending right. out, you know, partners wanted ads? 
I miss those days and I wish I could go back to having big parties and conferences, Laura, it was great. Uh, no, a lot of our work really comes, the, the pipeline comes through our community outreach programs. And so we have, again, just like every Federal Reserve Bank, these teams that are doing outreach meetings that are going to events. Um, and honestly, we'll ping me and say, hey, listen, there are some folks in Delaware that are really trying to figure out this challenge around childcare. Or there are some folks in New Jersey that are really interested in how to support minority owned small businesses. Or there's some really interesting things happening in Pennsylvania around broadband access and the digital divide. Um, so I get to kind of sit at a place where I, I receive lots of information from awesome partners uh, who are already kind of engaged in doing the work. And then we come in and help them, again, bringing in that research, building capacity. I do a lot of facilitation, you know, just sitting in dialogue with people. I will say I really miss doing it in person. Um, it I know, me best. too. Yeah, it's like these kinds of conversations digitally, they're, they're, you know, they're just not quite the same. Um, but it's really exciting to get to see where people go with the work. Um, and it's really exciting to get to meet these community partners who are often really the, the folks who will carry it forward uh, after the Federal Reserve's engagement. Engaging virtually. Because um, right now I'm actually in the process of planning a conference on the a virtual conference on the future of work. Um, as you engage in this kind of virtual activity, anything that you learned about how to do it well, oh. any place where it actually brought an advantage? I'll say my one lesson is to give people opportunities to participate. Um, again, if I assume I'm not the expert in the room and I'm talking down or at you, finding ways where people can share their expertise or their ideas, whether that's breakout rooms or, you know, we sometimes use an app where people can submit suggestions and ideas. Honestly, those are more exciting for me too. And I'm sure they'd be more exciting for your folks listening in. That's a great piece of advice. And it, it rings true to me. So we tapped into a little bit of this in the beginning, but I want to ask about something, some specific language that I came across when I was reading about the project. And it said that the goal was to generate entrepreneurial solutions to achieve inclusive economic growth and create pathways out of poverty in communities. Talk to me about the entrepreneurial part in this. Sometimes we think of people as having an entrepreneurial spirit. Sometimes um, we often think about entrepreneurs as the guys in hoodies in Silicon Valley. Um, in this context, what kind, who are the entrepreneurs and where is that um, unfolding? Absolutely. Great question, Laura. Um, and I actually often joke with folks that I am a serial intrapreneur. Um, I have been in several different roles where I'm not necessarily starting something new, although I might be starting something new like the Economic Growth and Mobility Project within an institution like the Federal Reserve Bank that's been around for a long time. Um, and so I'm, I'm a big fan of entrepreneurs. I find them wherever I go. Um, I often joke that those are, those are my sole people when I can find them in organizations. And, and honestly, they're the ones who, who are often making the change. So it may not be someone starting a new business or a new organization, um, some of the examples of the folks we've worked with have been a community foundation. Um, so in Scranton, they really were concerned about this issue around transportation and the entrepreneurs and their community foundation said, what can we do? How can we, how can we solve for this problem? Um, and they brought together a bunch of different stakeholders across the entire, like three counties actually, or two counties, three cities, different transit systems to try to have a conversation about solving for this problem. Um, and those are the folks I really like to, to hang out with and talk to about this, the folks who are really trying to think, 
within systems about how to shift those systems. And honestly, they're often in government, sometimes hard to find, <laughs> but um, you know, I was a serial entrepreneur in government myself when I was there. Um, and so I think those are the folks we really, we really gravitate towards with the Economic Growth and Mobility Project to try to advance this work. It makes a lot of sense. And it also speaks to my heart because I have to confess, I am also an entrepreneur, but I do it in higher ed. And I've often described myself as the person who makes new things happen in old places. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I've learned and encountered over and over again in that experience is that the people who make up those old places, those existing communities, um, often don't see the challenges that they're not experiencing directly. And they're often frightened that change will erode the things that keep them happy or safe, um, that it's you know a zero sum game. Yep. In this process of trying to find those entrepreneurs within the community, um, how do you A, find out who the naysayers are and deal with them in this process? Yeah. And listen, in every space we go into, there are folks that are anxious about it. You know, what is going to happen here? How is this collaborative going to impact our work? We already have the answer. We're, we're fixing it. We're good. Um, and I think one of the most important things that we do is using our research, really, because honestly, we're, we're still an institution that's based in research and data, demonstrate how the things that we can do to impact the people who are most at risk in our economy is really good for everyone. Mm. Um, so uh, an example I'll give, since we're, we're talking about women in work, um, we had a series we issued last year trying to understand what it would look like to have a more inclusive, or we say equitable recovery for workers. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, Laura, that's a term that a lot of people throw out and no one totally understands, right? You hear equity and this, <laughs> equity and recovery, I, you know, I lead a strategy called the equitable workforce recovery. If I sit down with someone who doesn't work in economic development or policy, they're like, what on earth do these words mean? <laughs> and what are you trying to say? Um, so part of our work was really also to try to define what that meant and what that looks like and how we can be a part of that, the solution there as well. So I want to dive into some of that work a little bit more. And you were alluding to it before that we know that um, women really, look, before the pandemic, women were underrepresented in the workforce, in leadership roles, in wealth acquisition, and all these measurements of economic stability and um, opportunity. The pandemic only made it worse. And you noted before, we both did, that it was particularly hard on women of color, particularly Black and Hispanic women. Mm -hmm. In the research, are you finding that Black and Hispanic women had the same experiences? Um, or are there anything that was unique to each of their communities um, that were important that were coming out as you were exploring this? Yeah, no, great question, Laura. And one of the things we've been seeing, so we have the data and the numbers, right? Um, that show us that, honestly, even as unemployment is improving, it's still not looking great, particularly in Black and Hispanic communities. Um, and it's one of the concerns we have. You know, we celebrate job gains and everyone's coming back to work and it's great. But if you were to look at the Black unemployment number in the United States, if that was the actual unemployment number, we, this would still be a crisis. We would be very concerned. Um, and one of the reasons this we think this happens is, is something uh, really about the kinds of jobs that people are in. And so mm -hmm. 
most of the jobs that were really initially impacted by the pandemic, those frontline jobs, retail, food service, hospitality, care work, are jobs that are occupied by women and particularly women of color. Um, to, and so, mm-hmm. to make it concrete, I was reading, now granted, this may be old data, um, and I was reading in a great book by Anne Helen Peterson about remote work, um, and she was saying that 40, only 42% of the workforce are knowledge workers. Yeah. yeah Is that at least in the accurate ballpark? That, that, that tracks, I, I like, I, that seems right. And I think, honestly, we're, we're in this conversation that sometimes frustrates me about uh, the great resignation, where we talk about, well, well, why are people quitting their jobs? And we end up talking about, you know, people want more flexibility, people want more remote work, but there is a population in this country that never had that option at all. They were always trying to decide. Exactly, exactly. And it's something that as, you know, we sit at home speaking to each other from our respective houses, there are women who never had a choice to be able to work from home, to be Mm -hmm. able to work remotely. They either had to take care of their kids or they had to go to in-person high-risk work where there's a lot of other things at play, right? A lot of those jobs are lower wage jobs. They may not provide really stable schedules. They may may not provide sick leave. They certainly don't provide remote work options. Right. So when we talk about the great recession, one of my concerns and one of the things we hope to inform is that we're talking to those women that are in those lower wage jobs that are making those really difficult decisions, then maybe you're just saying, I'm hesitant to go back to work because I don't know what I'm going to do with my kids during the day. Or I just want to know what my schedule looks like week to week. Right. Um, and that's not the story we're, we're hearing a lot. We're hearing a lot about the flexibility and remote work. And that's great. That's important for the future of work. But for a lot of women in frontline work, that just isn't, it's not even an option they get to consider. Right. And it, and it seems essential that as a community, we listen with tuned in enough ears to recognize that those are different populations. Yeah. And one of the things I thought was really interesting with this, this reworked series that we published earlier this year, we talked to a bunch of different experts nationally who study women, who study women in the labor market, who talk about these issues. And one of the resounding themes was if we can make our economy work better for the women who are most at risk, it's actually great for all of us, right? So I may be in the position where I have the privilege of being able to work remotely, but if we can improve job quality, if we can improve access to childcare for women in the communities most at risk, it benefits all women. And How I think- How does it do that? Make that real for me. So we have one, lots of data that show that again, if we can deal with some of these issues around unemployment and job quality and wages, honestly, putting more money in the hands of consumers is really good for the economy. And it kind of makes sense, right? You, mm-hmm. We think about this a lot. You know, if you give money to someone who is in the top 20%, they're just going to put it in, in savings, right? Um, we see that reflected maybe in other numbers that are indicators of how our economy is doing. But when we gave money to people through different programs that came out during the pandemic that provided cash assistance, extended unemployment, even the child tax credit, those, those people then spent that money at a local business, right? They went from I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make ends meet week to week to now I have a little more money to spend. And that cycles into the economy and actually is good for small business owners. Do we know what, what the need, what their need was and where the money got spent? Was it on things like healthcare and medicine? Um, How did it, where in, what got stimulated within the economy? 
Sure, I think a great question. Um, I don't know that we have data specifically on where you know all low wage workers spend their money. I would be interested to, to ask that question with the, the 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 work we're doing this year, talking to workers. Um, but what we do know is when the pandemic hit, the people who lost their jobs, who were immediately unemployed, were really trying to figure out how do I put food on the table, right? How do I take care of my kids? This is not, you know, am I going to be able to make it through a few months? People really had to, to weather that storm. Um, and what we saw was that once people reach that stability, then mm -hmm. they're more likely to be spending money on other resources, right? And that then generates back into those communities. So I think people went from spending on necessities, right? Things that are really inflexible that you have to, you have to pay rent. You have to pay the heating bill. Right. You have to, you know, pay for, for your kids to have something to eat every day to being able to spend a little more on things that maybe aren't necessities. They might be necessities to some of us, but uh, were things that, that honestly, a lot of women in particular were sacrificing when they were in these tough moments without a job, without income, without a safety net to fall back on. Talk to me a little more um, in the spirit about the, in the essential lever that is childcare. Because from my privileged position, working full-time, um, with benefits, paying for childcare while working, particularly in those early years before school covered most of the workday. It was a fortune. Yep, that's right. How are minimum wage workers or people who are making tipping wage, which is even lower, how can they possibly pay for childcare? That's a great question, Laura. And honestly, sometimes they can't. Uh, sometimes they're relying on informal networks. They're relying on grandma or mom or a neighbor. And it makes things very unstable because you're balancing, again, unstable schedules, right? So maybe I'm working um, a third shift job. So let's say I'm, I'm in the, the food and hospitality business, right? And I, I worked as a waitress many years, so I, I know this work. Um, you know, maybe I'm supposed to come in Wednesday, but the demand is low and it's cold outside and I get canceled last minute. But I've already paid for a babysitter. Right. So sometimes women are, are trying to navigate this instability and and oftentimes they'll say this is, again, you know, why were people hesitant to return to the labor market? At least they knew what each week to week would look like mm -hmm. when they weren't working. Um, and I think it's something we're finding that, you know, in this moment where we see first the disproportionate impact on women of color because of the jobs they were in. The second line of that is that caregiving still disproportionately falls on women. And we see reduced labor supply, women dropped out of the labor market. There was a point in this downturn where we were at labor force participation levels of like the 1980s. Oh my God. Yeah. It's for women, for women. It's yeah. just, yes, it's just devastating. Part of this is anchored in the fact that it actually costs money to go to work. Right. And you need an infrastructure to help support you in that process. You talked before about buses and transportation. And now this issue of childcare, you said something in our first half that was so fascinating that I never thought about, that it's not just, is there a childcare facility near you, but it's, can it operate at capacity because there isn't enough staffing? How does this cycle? So in other words, if, they, if the childcare centers can't find staff to work there, mm -hmm. other women can't go to work either. How does that cycle get interrupted? And, and even more interesting in this is who are childcare workers? They are low wage, predominantly women of color um, who are also trying to balance their own caregiving responsibilities and, and their jobs in childcare. Um, and this is, uh, you know, again, one of the things we're learning 
there was a, a closure. We did see significant number of childcare facilities impacted by the downturn, which obviously had decreased demand, some concerns about whether or not people were even going to bring their kids back in. Now the demand is back, right? People mm-hmm. would like to go back to work. Women would like to be able to put their kids in childcare. Uh, but yeah, and it's not so that we can go eat bonbons and get pedicures. Like, That's right. That's we'd like right. this because it's how we return to a functional work life and That's some sanity. Right. Yep. And I think you you hit on something really critical, Laura, because I part of my work is thinking about this infrastructure that we need to go to work. You know, it, it's being able to get on a train to get to your job. It is being able to connect to the internet to work remotely. But we kind of see childcare as an essential infrastructure. It is this support system that if you are in a privileged position, we just assume we have, right? If you have mm-hmm. a parent at home who can help out, that's a position a lot of women are not in. And they don't get to make a decision about, it's either work or take care of my kid. Right. Um, and the other piece of this uh, that is really concerning and critical you, you raised before was, was cost. Um, but I will say this, the, the labor shortage issue with childcare is really critical. And it has to do with just a general, our lack of investment in this sector. And you hear it from parents, you hear it from providers, you hear it from people who own childcare facilities, and you hear it from business owners, right? That people are are hesitant to come back to work. They'll apply for a job and say, I have to figure out this childcare situation. And so even if the facility is open and operating, which again, quite a few closed, they're very likely not operating at the capacity that they're licensed to operate. And that is simply because they do not have enough people in that facility. And so until we can solve really by investing in the sector and investing in these care workers, we're gonna keep being in this really critical issue of not having enough caregivers for the care that we need in our economy. So how do we get that investment? Who or what should be making the investment? How do we find them and how do we make it attractive for them? Absolutely. I think, first of all, for us, we really want to make the case as the Federal Reserve that this is an economic investment, right? This isn't for the country, for the country. That's right. Um, You know, this isn't something that we think is good to do because we like kids. I mean, listen, I I also think it's really good to do because we like kids and we want women to be able to work. Um, But it's really actually necessary for our economy. We are as strong as the number of people who are participating in our labor market. And the more barriers we put for people to be able to rejoin the labor market, the smaller those numbers are and the slower our recovery is going to be. And so investing in that really critical sector for us is not just a good thing to do or a moral imperative. It is an economic investment that that in the long run stimulates the economy, helps workers return to work and alleviate some of these really challenging decisions that mostly women, it also impacts men, working parents and in all of all genders, um, but really does uh, have, a, have an impact on whether or not people are able to return to work. So this is um, hearkening back to a conversation I had. It was a very different context. It was actually a show on um, patterns amongst voters of um, women voters, both Republican and Democrats. And we saw um, a pattern of many people, women and men, who are under the impression that if women are in the workplace, they're taking jobs away from men, that it's a zero sum game and that there isn't room in the workforce for everybody. And so people with more traditional family structures want to make sure the men are working. Um, can you tell me where the flaws are in that logic? <laughs> and because um, it feels more real to me when you're saying we're only as strong as like that equates with how many humans, regardless of gender, are in the labor force. That's right. That's right. And I think 
um, this zero sum thinking can be a major barrier to our work across the board, right? So I talked about equity and how we're talking about equitable recovery. Um, And I'll say most of us are really comfortable with equality, right? I get the same treatment as you do. Equity is, is really a different thing. It is acknowledging people who have disproportionately gotten worse treatment um, or been discriminated against in the labor market or had other barriers to overcome and centering our policy and impacts around them. And so I'll, I'll give an example here um, because I mentioned this like word jargon of equitable recovery and what does it mean? And that we spent some time last year just trying to untangle this language and say, you know, what does this mean for people? Right. Um, and one of those things for us is that, you know, we are thinking about removing barriers to work, removing barriers to education. Um, but also targeting interventions to disproportionately impacted populations. And that's where a lot of people get anxious because it really does feel like, well, then if, if they're getting this support, I'm not. Right. Uh, and what we're learning from the work we do, um, they call this, uh, an example I'll give is the curb cut effect, if you're familiar with that, Laura, which is what we saw when we um, created a physical infrastructure for people who are disabled. That is, we cut the curbs at the corner Mm -hmm. so that people who are disabled are able to access buildings, go sidewalks. It didn't just benefit people who are disabled, it benefited mothers and strollers and kids on bikes. And it's a small, really tiny policy example of what we see in our economy. That when we are benefiting the people who are most disproportionately impacted, let's say we improve job quality for childcare workers, or we are able to invest more in that sector, that improves the experience for all working parents, regardless of income status. Um, and I think one of the things I, I want folks who are listening to come away with from this is, again, this isn't, you know, someone else's loss. This is all of our gain, whether or not you had to leave your job or experienced economic insecurity. The more work we can do to help the women who are in the most risky positions in our economy, the better it is for all women and all people, really. So, Ashley, at the core of all of this, it's obviously enormously important. But one of the things that I'm sensing as we talk about this is it's not just abstractly important, that it's important to you personally. And there's kind of, it seems like a thread of concern about the world that we live in that's gone on, dare I say, since your college days. So tell me a little bit about how the, where your motivation is coming from, where this awareness of this bigger world that you can make an impact in came to you and how you developed it. Sure. Um, Great question, Laura. And I think, you know, I am, I began to be concerned about these issues, um, I think probably before college, to be honest, um, being raised by a mother who is an academic and uh, did a ton of work, honestly, and advocacy for women in academia to get uh, fair and equal treatment on their steps to tenure. So So you were inculcated young. Yeah, I I was raised in this household. And honestly, she and I have fascinating conversations when I go home now about the work I'm doing. Um, But I did also go to a women's college. I'm an alumni of of Barnard College, so one of the seven sisters and very proud. And I got this opportunity to be educated in a space where we really kind of challenged some of these conversations about where are women in leadership? Where are women in these fields? Why are women not in fields that like 
the sciences and engineering and medicine where they're often underrepresented. Um, and honestly, that's still a question I sit with in my work today, right? If we were creating career pathways for women and we had a more equitable opportunities, we would see more women of color in tech. We would see more women of color in engineering and in these sectors that provide stable wages and supports for families. Um, so I do think I started asking some of those questions when I was an undergrad and, you know, <laughs> listen, Barnard fostered it. They were into it. They were like, go out there, figure out how you can change. Um, so I often joke, I am an academic in training and at heart, but also a little bit of an activist. Like I always just wanted to do something about it. I wanted to see something done differently. And that definitely carries throughout my career. So I love hearing like how deeply rooted this stuff is, how intrinsic it is to who you are. Um, but also a question about Barnard. Um, it's not surprising that Barnard would encourage you, help you develop in a way so you could go ask these kinds of questions um, and be aware of how inadequate their presence has been in the past. But you were also in a community of women. Um, to what degree did being in that environment in a single sex school um, help you blossom and thrive? I think it had a huge impact on everything from, you know, my passion to, to my confidence as a, as a young woman growing up. So um, I, you know, I hear these conversations these days about we don't need women's schools anymore. There's actually more women in academia than men. And I attended high school and a wonderful high school. Uh, I'm from Texas originally, and I attended a co-ed high school. And I still remember being in places where these, these little things would happen where I would be, you know, kind of talked down to or sort of told like, well, you don't know enough about that to have an opinion on it. And it's something I think about even in the work I do now that there are often these moments with women where we sort of like, we, we assume that we have to be the foremost expert on all of these things. But really a lot of the women I'm talking about, a lot of the work I'm doing, you know, because you've lived it, right? Women know that childcare is extremely expensive and is a huge challenge for them financially because that is literally what their lives are. And being in an institution where I was not having to compete or feel invalidated in my opinions, it really helped me to develop a whole bunch of confidence um, not to mention, and I will say, I was just surrounded by the most passionate, smart, exciting women who are still my Barnard sisters and some of my closest friends. Uh, and really honestly pushed me to be like, you know, what, what are you going to do, Ashley? What are you going to do with this? You know? Well, we can't be, I can't express our gratitude for all that you are doing with it, Ashley. It is important. It is inspirational. And you do such a good job of explaining it to us. So thank you so much for joining us and for the hard work that you're doing. If people want to learn more about um, what's going on at the Fed and particularly this project, where can they find you? Where should they go? Absolutely. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a great conversation. Um, so you can go to the philadelphiafed.org backslash EGMP or Google the Economic Growth and Mobility Project. You can also follow me if you're interested on Twitter, Ashley A. Putnam or the Philadelphia Fed to see some of our exciting research and work that we have coming out. Fantastic. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have a question about anything you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. New episodes come out on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Many thanks, as always, to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Chris Tukes, Kara Pogue back in my office for all our help and support. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio. 
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.